Hi everyone, welcome to episode number one of Lighting a Candle for Democracy, The Whitlam Years, Australian Politics from December of 1967 to December of 1977. Firstly, I'd like to acknowledge the Ngunnawal people who are the traditional custodians of the Canberra region land on which much of this podcast is based. I pay respect to the elders of the Ngunnawal nation both past and present, and extend this respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples listening to this podcast today. Okay, this week I wanted to give you all a background of how Australia became a federation in 1901 and how we got to this state of play in December of 1967. Well, to do that, we've got to go back 120 years ago to Australia's federation in 1901. This would prove to be a difficult process for the six colonies and will lead to what could be classed as being a compromised federation. The Australian colonies had come from very different backgrounds and had major jealousies between all of them, particularly between the two largest colonies, New South Wales and Victoria. The settlement of the Australian continent by the British Empire over the period of the late 18th an early 19th century, which displaced the original Indigenous Australians, who had been custodians of the land for tens of thousands of years, would result in six colonies, New South Wales, Victoria, Queensland, South Australia, Western Australia and Tasmania. Each colony would have separate legislators, defence forces and tariffs, which tax trade among, amongst each of them. They would hold few things in common except for loyalty to the British Crown and a vague concept of those in the concept as being Australians. However, by 1890, in realisation of possible threats to Australia from other powers, there was a consensus among the colonies that a common defence force would be prudent. It would take over a decade at the end of the 19th century before the six colonies finally became the Australian Federation that we know today. The new country of Australia would have a constitution that would reflect the British Empire at the time and the compromises that were made among the colonies. There would be no revolution, Bill of Rights or Declaration of Independence that would lead to the creation of the Australian nation. Its constitution would simply reflect the practical individuals who negotiated its details. It's not necessarily a good or bad thing, it just is what it is and reflected the pragmatic reasons for the six colonies deciding to pull their interests. First and foremost, the Governor-General, the representative of the British Crown, would have considerable powers in the Constitution, including being Commander-in-Chief of the Armed Forces and could exercise the powers that were vested in the Queen. According to Practice and Convention, the Governor-General would take advice from the government of the day, but the Governor-General could also exercise what was called reserve powers, which meant that the Governor-General could, could dismiss the government advisers and replace them. There would be two Houses of Parliament, the House of Representatives that would be effectively popularly, popularly elected based on equal population electorates in an upper house, the Senate. However, importantly, the Senate would have an equal number of members, 12 from each state. In other words, a small state like Tasmania would have an equal number of members, 
as New South Wales, which had many times its population. Senate would be a house of review and a state's house, which in theory would ensure that the smaller states would not be disadvantaged by legislation which favoured the larger states. Also of importance was, the, was that the Constitution specifically stated that the capital of the Federation would be located in New South Wales, but would have to be at least 100 miles from Sydney. Until the capital was found, the Parliament, Parliament would, sit in, would meet in Melbourne. There was another compromise between the colonies, which would ensure the future development of Canberra, a city or town that would be isolated from the states. When the new constitution was finally ratified in 1901, divisions would strike the Australian government led by Sir Edmund Barton. One of the key issues was on free trade, which, is a point, which was a point of contention between the pro-tariff state of Victoria and anti-tariff anti policy generally supported by New South Wales. This would divide the conservative members of the new parliament and during the opening years of federation, the ALP was the only truly organised major political party. Due the, during this first decade of federation, governments would not be able to remain in power in their would not be able to govern in their own right, but would rely on individuals and the Australian Labor Party to remain in power. However, despite an appearance of instability, the early years of federation would also result in what was a vague, but also a growing consensus of what Paul Kelly called an Australian settlement. The settlement would be based on protection and or support for Australian industry, both primary, both primary and secondary, a centralised wage bargaining system, a restricted immigration policy, a social safety net and a defence and an defence policy, policy which aligned Australia with the great powers. It would represent a country that feared the outside world and as a result would protect its workers from foreign competition and would institute what was a blatantly racist immigration policy and would protect itself by aligning itself with the strongest power of the day, which was Great Britain at the time and, of course, the United States later on. The Australian settlement, would, despite being challenged, would provide a broad consensus among all the major political parties for the next eight decades when it started to dismantle. By the end of the First World War, the political party system had started to become apparent. In 1917, the Nationalist Party, which was made, of, made up of ex-Labour Party members of Parliament, including Billy Hughes, the Prime Minister, and anti-Labour members of Parliament, formed to become the predominant conservative political grouping. The Nationalists would eventually be replaced by the United Australia Party in 1931. And then finally, the Liberal Party was founded in 1944 to replace the United Australia Party as the most predominant anti-Labour or conservative party. The Australian Labour Party would now face a conservative coalition of the Liberal and Country Parties. So now we begin to see the post-World War II political groupings that begin to now look a lot more familiar. On December 10, 1967, the Liberal the federal government was made up of a coalition between two political parties, the Liberal Party and the Country Party, and they had been in government for over 17 years. 
The Prime Minister was the Liberal, Harold Edwin Holt, and his Deputy Prime Minister was John Blackjack McEwen, the leader of the country party. The Liberal Party was, was only formed in 1944, but as we mentioned before, this was one of the long line of anti-socialist and, and pro-private enterprise political parties that, is, that had existed since Federation. But what made the Liberal Party unique in this post-war period was it, its appeal to the growing Australian middle class in what Sir Robert Menzies called the forgotten people. This appeal would partly explain the Liberal Party's success and longevity in government during the, 30, during the post-war period. Australia had suffered deprivation, significant deprivations over the 30-year period from 1914 to the end of World War II in 1945 the two world wars and a Great Depression that would sentence Australian workers and their families to abject poverty. The Country Party, on the other hand, was founded in 1921. As the name suggests, it was founded initially to support the interests of farmers. At the time, wool made up 39% of Australia's exports and, 29, and 25% was, was sourced from agriculture. Two-thirds of Australia's exports were therefore coming from Australia's primary industries. Farmers and graziers were conservative people and they knew their value to the Australian economy. They had a narrow, the Country Party had a narrow, narrow focus early on in its history, focusing on representing the farming community rather than just the country towns. From its inception, the Country Party were joining coalition governments, at a federal level anyway, with their other conservative parties. They could never form governments on their own at the federal level because they simply could not get enough, enough votes, but their importance to the Australian economy gave this party considerable power and influence. Farmers would often, it would lead to farmers also getting considerable subsidies from the federal government. There was an old saying in that period that Australia rode on the sheep's back, and that was indeed true until after the, well after the post-World War II period. But when John McEwen became leader of the Country Party in 1958, this had already begun to change. Primary industry shares of exports would drop from just over 60% at the end of the 1950s to around 45% in 1967. It would be replaced by the rapid increase in natural mineral resources, which would find its level of exports jumping from 12% to just below 30. Manufacturing was also important. While its exports remained static over that period, its level of employment by 1967 had around a portion of around 27% of the total employment in Australia. That's over one in four people. Agriculture, on the other hand, had lost its, had fallen to less than 10% of employment of Australians down to, down to down to less than 10%, and the mining industry was still only employing 3% of Australians. Added to this was a drift of rural people from rural areas to the city. In 1920, almost half of Australia's population lived in small regional towns and rural areas such as farms. By 1967, this would drop by almost half to less than 30%. John McEwen recognised the risks to the country party with a reduction in agriculture contributing significantly less to the country's wealth 
and a decrease in its employment. But McEwen had a bold plan to address this. He would reach out to Australian manufacturers seeking their support. McEwen as Minister of Trade and Commerce would champion a tariff policy that would build Australia employment in manufacturing, particularly in car manufacturing. By 1966, the country party led by McEwen had enshrined assistance to manufacturing in its formal policy where it supported the use of tariffs and bounties to encourage economic and efficient primary and secondary industry within Australia. McEwen and his Department of Trade and Commerce effectively became another economic government department as it had considerable level of control over assistance to the manufacturing industry. McEwen was trying to chart a new course for the country party from just being a party of country cockies to being a political movement that supported the development of Australia's economy through both primary and manufacturing industry. The party in opposition at the time was the Australian Labor Party. This was the oldest of Australian political parties. Founded in 1891, before Federation, the party had a tumultuous history, experiencing three catastrophic splits since Federation, with the most recent one occurring just over a decade previously. The party at the time was possibly in its lowest ever state. It had been in power for, out of power for 18 years, and it had suffered a crushing defeat at the previous 1966 election. Its new leader, Edward Gough Whitlam, had been deputy leader for six years before taking on what was arguably the most difficult position in Australian politics. The last split in 1955 had resulted in the creation of the Democratic Labor Party. The issue was around communism in the trade union movement with groups inside and outside the party making desperate attempts to rid end the party of any taint of socialism. The end result was a number of MPs left the ALP and some managed to find positions in the Senate representing their new party. This division with state was most affected by this was Victoria, Australia's second largest state. The DLP was determined to separate themselves from their old party by directing their preference to the preferences to the Liberal and country parties. The ALP particularly the Australian Labor Party, particularly in Victoria, turned to the left and since 1955 had bitter internal infights over issues such as state aid for private schools and the presence of the United Bases, not in the presence of United States bases on Australian soil. This would come to a head with the famous faceless men election where the Australian Labor Party was accused of making policy through its federal conference, conference made up of unelected individuals rather than its elected MPs. Added to this division was that Whitlam, the new leader, was despised by Arthur Corwell, the previous leader that Whitlam had displaced. Despite its lack of electoral success, the ALP could not simply be ignored. Alan Reid, that veteran general, journalist known as the Red Fox, who had attacked Labor in the past, would admit that the party was, I quote, the dynamic of Australian politics. The party's philosophy 
and policy platform at the time included a strong commitment from the state to social welfare, regulating industries and, and the financial system and also the state ownership of industries. The Liberal Country Party government since 1949 have been very careful not to differ too much from this path. They had not engaged in wholesale selling of government industries or had materially increased and or had materially, materially decreased regulations on the financial system or they, and they also did not substantially dismantle Australia's social security safety net. Their, the ALP as a result was becoming less relevant as it could not provide an alternative to the government in power at the time, which of course was the coalition government. The 1966 election would be an important event for the historical period that this podcast will cover. It would result in a crushing defeat for the Australian Labor Party, led by Arthur Corwell, the leader of the, of the ALP at that time. The coalition government, led by the new Prime Minister, Prime Minister Harold Holt, would have a landslide victory against the Australian Labor Party with a 40-seat majority, the largest at that time. The election would also see a considerable increase in Liberal Party numbers in the House of Representatives. In this, in this election, the Liberal Party would increase its strength by winning nine out of the 12 seats that Labor lost in the landslide, with the Country Party winning only two. The Liberal Party will come within two seats of winning power in its own right. So, let me see. It was Christmas 1966. Harold Holt was leading a government that had been in power for almost two decades and had won a crushing victory over a divided opposition Labour Party. The economy was booming with rising living standards. Yet, just 12 months later, the Prime Minister Harold Holt will be having what was close to a mental and physical breakdown with members of his government questioning his leadership and two of the most senior ministers in open warfare with each other. So what happened over the next 12 months? Well, you'll have to wait until next week to see what happened in 1967. In those 12 months leading up from Christmas of 1966 to Harold Holt's disappearance off the sea of coast of Victoria on December, on December 17, 1967. One of my regular things I'm going to do here is is to uh, talk about a book of the week. Um, and today, um, the book of the week I've got um, is, um, well, there's actually two I've got, actually. One is The End of Certainty, uh, which was written by Australian journalist Paul Kelly and was released in 1992. Well, it was actually about Australian politics in the 80s but it's very relevant for us because it includes background information on Australia's federation and the Australian settlement it produced. This was actually the second political history book I read and I thoroughly recommend it. The second, the second book I would recommend is Australia Since Federation, which was released in 1976. This is actually a very good book as well because it gives a very good general idea of Australian politics, political history, from 1901, the Federation, 
through to 1976. So that covers most of the period that we'll be talking about in, the, in our podcast. I'd like to thank you all for joining me and I look forward to talking to you all again next week where we can talk about that 12 months from, to, to Harold Holt's disappearance off the seas of Port Sea and the events that would change Australia over the next decade. Thank you very much. Goodbye.